um, Pazi and Vivian. What do what you think are the key international issues in education you think we should be putting our focus on in Australia? Vivian, I'll hand to you first if you'd like to go. We'll take it in turns, the pressure. know that it's that different in Australia from some of the other jurisdictions that I work in. But I think uh, when I think about the work and the school leaders I'm working with in Norway and Copenhagen uh, and also some here and in New Zealand, one of the issues that I know nothing about, and maybe that's why I think it needs to be on the agenda, is the engagement of our students with the learning, particularly in senior secondary school. Um, in Norway, that is a considerable problem. Um, and one of the ways that um, some systems and school leaders have attempted to um, deal with this is by having a very student-led, um, very pastorally focused, project-based, personalised, any other labels, differentiated approach. And, the, and I'm thinking about a particular high school in Auckland that has used this. And, and it seems to me that some of the mistakes that have been made around attempts to engage disengage, the disengaged and treat older students as adults is that there has been a flip-flop between too much teacher and school control and structure to not enough. Uh, and in, our, in the way that we tend often to do in education, the discourse also flip-flops between teacher-led and student-led, instead of how do we have teachers facilitating the engagement of students while both are mutually accountable, mutually responsible, student voice is used as a powerful feedback mechanism but teachers aren't disempowered because they're not supposed to teach students who are doing discovery learning or project-based or whatever. So that's just some thoughts out there about the challenge of engagement. I have a doctoral student at the moment working in a high school, another maths teacher. We've been on about maths teachers today, haven't we? And he is studying in great detail the theories of action of Pacifica students, not quite in the senior high school, but a couple of years below, in maths classes. And he has, and they are tragically disengaged, but behaving beautifully. Pretending. And he's understood the practices that they use to pretend that they get it when they don't. He's interviewed them about their beliefs about why they say they understand when the teacher genuinely asks but they don't. He's, he has unraveled the dynamic between teacher instructions and ways of correcting students' errors and the shame of the students and the collusion of the students and the pretense. And those students are in maths classes hour after hour, week after week, month after month that they have no understanding of or very little. And then we think about disengagement. So. Um, 
I, I think one of those issues that your question was about international thing. You know, one of those issues that we see around the world now is something we discussed briefly in in, uh, in the workshops this afternoon, and it's the declining well-being of children. And I, I, I think it, it, it's something that unless we do something quickly, it doesn't really matter what we do um, in school improvement and, and, and education from, you know, if the kids are not healthy or ready to learn, nothing's going to happen. And I agree with you, Vivian, that in engagement um, is important, but engagement or lack of engagement, student engagement, is often with coming with the same package of the declining well-being and you know all the all the problems and issues that are there. So that I think you know, if there's one thing that we all need to pay much more attention to, and and you know keep this well-being thing that has not traditionally belong to the school, you know, traditionally the teaching profession was about teaching children stuff. And then the parents or then the healthcare workers, they, they take care of the, the health, but we, 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 cannot, we cannot think like that anymore. And that's why, you know, if we take this seriously, then it's a whole new question for all of us uh, to tackle. And the, the, the challenge, of course, is that we are not health or mental health uh, uh, experts, and, and that's, why we need to work together with those who are and make sure that the kids are, um, are healthy and happy and, and ready, ready to learn. The, the other thing that I, I spoke in, in, uh, in the workshops this afternoon was the, the, uh, the role of healthy nutrition and, and food. And I think this country, particularly uh, being a wealthy and well-off place, uh, should afford making sure that each and every child every day in every school and every community will be provided a healthy school meal every day and so that they, the children would learn how to take care of their own health through nutrition because everybody understands that if this happens, when this happens then all those things that we have on our, our plans and, and, and desks to teach children whatever they need in the future become much more easy. It's as simple like this, you know, as long as we keep kind of pushing this, this well-being and health, and particularly mental health issue, to be taken care of by somebody else, we're going to find it increasingly difficult to do what we are assigned to do. You showed us an interesting graph when you had your session about the implications of um, on well-being of screen time. Um, can you, and you, you commented also about that in Finland uh, there's more play and um, more, more lunch as well. Um, do, is there less screen time? Is, do you see that in Finland, that there is less screen time? Is, that, is there a comparable with Australia? No, or? no, it's, it's a huge thing. You know, it the is. interesting thing with this screen, screen time is that it used to be, a, it, it seems to be like a universal thing everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go. You can go to India, Uganda, South Africa or Chile. And it's the same, it's the same thing uh, that on average, here and back home in Finland, the, the average teenager's screen time is around 9 or 10 hours a day. Let me say it again. 9 or 10 hours every day the, the teenagers spend in front of one or the other type of the screen. And I, I think the tragedy here and back home is that that exceeds by many hours the average time that they sleep. And it should be the other way around. Any pediatrician can tell you that a 13-year-old or 15-year-old or 17-year-old boy or girl here and in Finland should sleep to be healthy and ready to learn, do those things that we ask them to do, should sleep about nine hours a day, right? And if the average here in Australia now is seven and a half hours to sleep, you know what, we have an issue here. And, and you know, some, sometimes people ask me that, this is a different story, but relates to this one, that, you know, what, what's your thoughts about homework? And this myth that you hear about Finland that there's no homework, that's rubbish. Of course we have homework and sometimes a lot of homework. But you know, my policy is very simple about homework. I'm in all in for a two hour homework standard for each and every child in every school here. What is this two hour homework? It's a two hours extra sleep. Just think about it. You assign your kids 
a two-hour homework for every day, but say that go to sleep early, you know, put your devices away, switch off the TV, and sleep two hours more. And I can tell you something, the, the positive impact of this additional two hours in their learning and well-being would be huge. So, but that's exactly the same thing back home that it is here and in New Zealand and everywhere. So we are, we are really dealing with kind of a universal thing where we can also have a, a shared universal response if we want to. And is there any system you see in your travels, either of you, Vivian or Pazi, that are beginning to tackle this and taking on a system response? Because um, it's a big, big um, complex issue. The screen time issue. Or just, um, yeah, the, the bit about, because we, we know the impact of social media and... Well, you know, the Canadians have done probably the, the, one of the best work in, uh, in you know, bringing the well-being at the same level of importance than academic performance or equity or other things, I think. So, so we, we are seeing these things. But when it comes to the, the controlling the screen time, you know, that's where we see very different policies and practices. The extreme is France, and next one will be... Sweden and some other countries where the government issues a legislation that bans technology in schools, which I think is a very bad idea, because it takes away this opportunity from us to teach children, young people, self-control and really understanding you know, how to cope and, and responsibly use these things. And then there are other countries where it is all left to the schools to decide uh, you know, how to do these things. So we, we don't really have this so new thing that we don't really have experience yet, what you know, how to how to cope and deal with this thing with uh, with schools. Thank you, Pazi um, and Vivian. What are your thoughts on the views held by some that PISA is part of the issue behind some of the policy drivers countries are using for school improvement? <laughs> this, this is another of those easy questions that even I can answer to you. <laughs> Uh, but I, I would really want to hear also what Vivian has to say because of the, uh, the New Zealand and this part of the world is a very interesting, yeah, interesting thing. But you know, PISA, OECD PISA is an interesting example of the, a little bit the same thing that NAPLAN had, used to be here. That, you know, it comes with the good intentions and that's what PISA was, was supposed to be 15, 20 years ago. It, it was supposed to be a kind of a one metric, one indicator for education systems to see how they are moving towards a different types of set of outcomes in education, namely the, the learning outcomes that focus more on competencies and skills, you know, what the kids need to be able to have in a, in a new world. That was the initial idea. No competition, uh, no preparation for tests, uh, no corruption or cheating or those things. And now we have all of those things around us. That the PISA has turned out to be a kind of a global competition that the ministers around the world are shaking in their pants or skirts, you know, in, uh, every three years in the December when the results are coming out because they are afraid of doing poorly. And this is not what the PISA was supposed to be. And uh, again, I must say that OECD PISA has done some good things that we have to recognize those things. Like if you want to have an example, one of the good things that we wouldn't be doing uh, in this way is the, the global conversation about need for equity and equality in education. That's one of the clear outcomes of the, the OECD PISA. But then, of course, it has come up with the, many of the negative things, some unintended consequences, uh, that unfortunately the OECD has not been kind of a clear enough and op open, transparent enough to, to inform the, the, the governments and, and parents uh, about those things, but that's... Uh, that's what it is. It's the same thing with NAPLAN, that there are some good things that are coming with that, but the in, kind of intended purposes of these measurements are, uh, have changed what they are right now. One of the things um, that I think is really important about PISA for New Zealand anyway, is that New Zealand has um, eschewed, avoided, run away from whatever language you want to use, um, national standardised testing. So our students do not get any national standardised testing until they are 15. Up until that point, it's schools have the right to decide what assessments, standardised or not, that are used. 
and reported to their parent elected boards and reported to uh, government. And of course, at that level, you can't aggregate the data. So what PISA has provided with New Zealand is an externally, a, a reasonably valid and reliable external check on every Tom, Dick and Harry's claim about how good the New Zealand education system is. And enabled uh, some hard data to be put in place to moderate the claims of politicians, the profession, critics, about what the system is. It has provided New Zealand with a very important wake-up call on a number of issues. One example, the PISA data revealed for New Zealand that we have, as reported by student voice by students, one of the highest rates of reported bullying by students in the world. Shock, horror, and some debate about that. So I think that the need, and I think I take that as a principle, yes, teacher judgments, yes, professional judgment, but we know that moderation is critical. Whether we're talking small data, formative assessment, whether we're talking PISA, whether we're talking high stakes, NAPLAN, we need a basket of indicators. Great that now well-being is part of those indicators. And we need external checks on our own claims about how good our kids, our school, our system is. And that's what PISA has done for New Zealand. Then the other thing I find is that because the assessment debate is so polarised or has been in New Zealand around high stakes, low stakes, we get a lot of claims made about various flaws in PISA data. And I'm sure there are flaws, such as, oh yes, but in this system or that system, they exclude a whole bunch of underperforming kids, da da da, and so therefore the comparisons are unfair. Well, actually, the technical appendices of the PISA reports tell you exactly how many kids have been excluded from every jurisdiction and why. So, it, I think I'm not, I, I'm delighted that we are now getting serious about wellbeing indicators. But I think that checks on our own systems claims have been absolutely critical for many systems. I think Germany got some PISA results and got a, they were another example of, an, of a wake up call. It was called the PISA shock in Germany. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I might just open it up to the floor at this stage and um, invite um, questions from any of the... Bruce has got one. Do we have a microphone, Yehudi? Are you on? Um, I'm really uh, uh, was challenged by uh, your graph showing the correlation between ice cream and these uh, results. And I just want to reassure you that uh, when our 15-year-olds uh, next sit PISA, every one of them will be receiving an ice cream just prior to that, and I'm sure that will make a big difference to their performance. Having said that, in all seriousness, I want to go back, Parsi, to your earlier uh, reflections uh, today around being a, a new Australian. Um, what uh, the observations that you've made and the contrast that you've shared uh, around what you're seeing in terms of educational culture in Australia and what your experience has been in Finland. And specifically, I'd be interested in your reflections on, I think, a dimension that is, is very apparent in our, our jurisdiction, certainly uh, in the secondary uh, sector, around this notion of parent scrutiny, entitlement, empowerment uh, to critique um, and challenge um, the educational directions and actions of, of school leaders in particular 
and any early uh, sort of um, thoughts that you might have as to, from your perspective, what's going on there? What, what's, what's generating that? Oh, it's a great, it's a great, really great question. You know, I, I, if I go back to the, uh, the, the this uh, primary school in Sydney where our sons are going, you know, this this is one of those things that the principal has asking me to, well, almost literally asking me to help the the school. And I said, so what what can I, what what would be the good thing to help you? And you know, she has very openly mentioned the, uh, the you know, how how to how to, to kind of a rearrange the, the, the working relationships between the school and the parents. Uh, and my wife is now a, a, a vice chair of the, the what, what is it called here, the parents council, yeah, something like this. So she, she's doing much more work with the, with the school. But you know, this is, this is certainly one of those things that if I can do anything for that school or, or your schools here, that's, that's one of those things that I really would like to put myself into this situation and see that, is, is there anything I can do with the parents or for the parents to help them to see, you know, how to think about what the school should be doing. You know, my assumption is everywhere the same, that we all parents, we all who are parents here, we always want the best things for our children. We should never question that there are parents who don't understand uh, understand that or who would like to have something else. But the, the issue is, in many cases, that I'm not sure that the parents know exactly what is the best thing for their kids. They want the best things, best things for the children, but they're not sure that they, they really understand, that they have thought through this, what is a good thing for them. And this is exactly where, where this kind of a, uh, space to to work with the parents and help them to see that they are different things. For example, one of my favorite things now, topics with parents and teachers, is to have a deeper discussion about the role of play in, in, in young children's people's or people's lives in general. And this is a highly misunderstood and um, and undervalued idea that the power that play has, particularly in children's lives. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure that if I'm if I'm able to find a way to have a communication with parents who go to your schools and mine about this particular thing, then the parents would be probably thinking a little bit differently about, you know, what what, what is good, what is the best thing for their own children in the school and at home. Personally, I think, um, you, you know, in this list of things that I, I think is going on here in Australia, in the families and schools, is that overall my my kind of a um, uh, summary is that you, you try too hard. That people think that you you know try harder you work, harder you try, the better you get, get you know out of these systems. And it's not going to be be that way. For the directorate of education or the departments of education, I think what you what you do too hard is that you have a kind of a too tight grip on the schools and the system overall. I'm often offering that just loosening a little bit, you know, trust your schools and teachers, great things will happen. Some of these things may be things that, you know, is, is not exactly what you should be doing, but I can tell you one thing, that most of the things that schools would be doing are the things that you couldn't even imagine that they are able to do. And only then, when, when, we, are, when we start from that direction, then the, the principals are able to do the same thing with their own teachers, and, and teachers are able to do the same thing with their kids in a classroom. And you know, this is one way to travel this, you know, take this journey to work with parents so that they would also understand that, you know, you don't need to helicopter your kids all the time and make sure that they're doing the right things. Just let them go for a little bit more than you do. And this is exactly what happens in Norway, in Denmark, and Sweden and Finland and Iceland and many other countries, the Netherlands, that we, we rely much more on you know people's good intentions and will to do good things. And here I think in Australia, I don't know how this is in, in New Zealand, but here I see like everybody's trying too hard and holding too tight whatever it is. And, and therefore the, the solution is easy, it's just loosen up a little bit, trust your, your people around you a little bit more see what happens. If somebody gets into serious trouble, go there and say that I'm here to help you. But you know, having too much control on everything you do, whether it's a classroom or home or school, is unfortunately, I don't see that this is the kind of a way towards kind of elevating, lifting the, the great Australian education to the next level. Oh, did, did I miss a meeting? <laughs> Vivian, do you have a comment about um, that, that issue in New Zealand? 
I was just thinking about the latest request of school leaders, which is to incorporate the teaching of resilience into the curriculum as one of those capabilities that we want children to develop. And I was thinking about this, and I think it might be linked to what you were saying, Parsi. Life is supposed to teach you resilience. So what is it about the way that families are helicoptering over their kids and shuffling them from one after-school activity to the next and, and, and just having this tight rein on their kids? Um, what's happening in our communities and families that schools have to teach kids resilience? You know? And what Parsi was saying about well-being, which I absolutely agree with, but I'm sitting here thinking, where do families and community come into this? Um, how can we have respectful debates with our parents about what's the school's job and what's the parents' job and what we do together? And how can we have educational engagement with parents about play, about reading, about screen time, so that you people don't feel that you're going to become more and more and more responsible. Now, I think that we, we went through a period where we talked a lot about parental engagement, upbringing, responsibilities. And then we went into a decade or more, I can remember when this happened, when we started being told off for deficit theorising. You know what I mean? And so blaming parents became something that educators were to avoid doing, and quite rightly. But we lost the distinction between talking with parents about responsibilities of school and of family and of working together and about language and screen time and resilience. And so out of fear of being accused of blaming parents and deficit theorising, I meet more and more leaders that are afraid to have these conversations at all. There's lots of nodding in the room. I feel that you've hit on a, you know, something that's resonating with the leaders in, in our system. Julie. Um, Joe's coming with a nod. Um, thanks, Judy. I don't have a question, I have a statement. I've, I've become really worried about the profession in regard to the expectation around what we have to do about the issue of well-being for students, but less, we're less worried about the well-being of our teachers. And I say that because I don't think it's possible anymore to say that well-being is okay in the profession. So my worry is Phrases like building teacher capacity have become, the definition has shifted and there's almost a blaming coming into the lexicon and education around teacher capacity building. And I don't know whether that's chicken or egg, whether that's a sign of capacity, well-being capacity of staff or whether it's creating poor well-being of staff. That, that's an excellent question, really. And, and you know, I, I hear often people asking the same thing, that what should we do to do this or that? You know, in a, in a kind of a heavy-loaded educational environment like Australia, when you are already doing, I said, you are doing too much, and I seriously think that you are doing too much, the answer can be very, the solution can be very simple. Let, let's turn this whole question around. 
rather than asking that what should we what can we do what should we do to address the teacher or, or student well-being how about asking what we should stop doing or what should we do less than we are doing right now and i'm quite sure actually that the, the best solution follows from these types of questions rather than trying to figure out what to do more on top of all those things that you already do I, I do not think that on your agendas and schedules that you have too much space anymore on additional things but you know if you, if you think about it, that how about doing some things less maybe the well-being and engagement and happiness would improve by doing less of what you do already I know that it's painful it's always it's always difficult to take away something or give away something that you have learned to do for many years. But sometimes it's just the best way to move forward. And we spoke earlier in, in the workshops, we spoke about you know, giving both teachers and children more time during the day to be by themselves or with their friends or colleagues and relax and rest a little bit uh, rather than have the whole day schedule or something where people are expected to do certain things. Um, and you know this is one of those beautiful things in the Finnish uh, Scandinavian model schooling is that there's a lot of time for individuals to you know be by themselves and think about what they do and um, I'm, I'm quite sure that this could be one one of those things that you could you could do less. Let me say this as well that you know we, we are you, you you are part of a very unique community in the ACT here. We can, you can have all the principals easily here in this room and you can have all the deputy principals also in the same room. Tell me any other jurisdiction in the world that would have the same luxury. There are not too many places that have, have the same. Singapore can do the same. Singapore can do, do the same. That's actually why Singapore is doing so well. Because they're using exactly this advantage that they can have everybody in the room like this and then we have a conversation and say, that, how about doing this? And everybody goes and does it. Okay? You know, you could, uh, when I go back home to New South Wales, there's no way that we can ever do anything like this. Never. But you can do that, so, so make sure that you use this advantage that you have of coming with the, with the size and the smaller community and that you know one another and you can reach everybody like this. It's a huge thing. <coughs> so the kind of a theory of change for you here has to be very different than is in uh, all the other parts here in, in this country. Make sure that you, you build your work on that particular opportunity, it's very important. Vivian, I saw your hand go to the microphone when that question was asked, so would you like to comment? Well, I did say earlier this morning that for me, being strategic <coughs> means knowing what you're not doing, as well as knowing what your priority goals for the year or for the four years are. But if I'm going to use my own process for thinking about this, okay, in the actions box is too much stuff happening. Let's think of, do you call it co-curricular activities or extracurricular activities? Ellen Timberley and I did a study on this in a large Auckland High School some while back, and they had over 200 of them. Scandinavian teachers don't do this at all in some cases. Don't do, don't do co-correctly, extracurricular. But then the question is, that's in the actions box, what are the beliefs and values that maintain such an extraordinarily demanding co-curricular agenda? What are the beliefs and values of school leaders filtering the expectations of parents, maybe, that drive that sort of workload? And I don't know the answer to that, but in this, generally for you, but in this school the answer was something like, um, some of the kids come to school for netball. Okay? So we're compensating for disengagement in the classroom with engagement in netball and other things. So that was one driver. So if you're going to take Parsi's advice and do less, you have to actually, you will make things worse 
for some kids by taking away netball unless you inquire into why the netball is the only thing that is engaging those senior students at school and inquire into what's happening for them in their classrooms in the core stuff another driver was teachers goodwill and when I said talk to the principal I said did you know you had over 200 of these because we spent ages counting them all there's a question of how you count them of course but um and he said no he said it didn't really um and I said and I said well why have you got so many and he said well when teachers come to me volunteering to do the after school something or other program it's my job to support them so he is well-intentioned hard-working teachers saying something's missing for these kids therefore I'm going to add something more that they like and like better perhaps than what's happening in the classroom so that might help you reflect on how to think about doing less and the causes of the overload and then that will help you get a handle on how to reduce it I think. Thank you. Um, we've got a question up there, one from Julie. Have you got a microphone, Julie? Um, so to Parsi and Vivian, uh, I've picked up on a question that um, Parsi asked us, which was, why have we followed bad ideas from other countries? Which is an excellent question. Um, and then the questioning was, so is this good for our kids? And who should answer that question for us? Unfortunately, sometimes the impact of the political agenda is that it is answered for us by others who have not the experience and knowledge that we have as leaders in schools. And I'm just wondering, because you've worked more globally than, than we have and lived more globally, um, is this where the, um, the federal election is coming up shortly and we'll all be hammered about spelling and reading and Phonics. what are we going to do about it and so many other things. Yeah. So is that um, the, the impact of the political agenda often filters down to what happens for us um, to then our, you know, the leaders of the education director will start to say, we'll be hammered about other things. And so how is that, what's your experience of hammering by in political agendas? <laughs> Are you hammered in New Zealand? My experience of what you're describing is that it's worldwide. And it is, um, it is a um, major bypass strategy, too much change, not enough improvement. Now, what I haven't studied, and I would love to, but probably won't get around to it, is why is it that senior policy ministry departmental officials cannot have conversations with the politicians about why their genuine desire to improve school systems will not work by adding more stuff. Because what you and the policymakers and the politicians have in common is the desire to improve those outcomes, the well-being, the equity, the achievement, whatever. That's common ground. So conversations with ministers and politicians that go something like, Minister, absolutely with you on that, but I think that if you introduce this new literacy initiative, restructuring, obesity program, resilience program or whatever, you're not going to get what you want for these reasons. Or it may be a quick fix that's mismatched to the cause of those difficulties. So I don't know, I'm speculating, I don't know whether Policymakers have those types of conversations with politicians. Yes, politicians want quick wins, but they also want wins, i.e. not failures. And if they introduce quick reforms the way that they, are going, that they typically do, they get failures, or they get patchy wins and lots of losses. Now, in a three-year election cycle like we have in New Zealand, they're often not held to account for those failures. 
But I don't think the conversations with politicians are nearly good enough on those lines. Tarzi, do you have some reflections? Yes, of course I do have. You know, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, the politics here in my new home country, to me, looks a little bit the same as uh, Aussie rule football. There's a lot of things happening, but I have no idea what these people are trying to do. <laughs> you know, back home we play, play ice hockey. That's the only real sport, like the Canadians say. It's a simple, straightforward game. You take the puck and put it in the net, and that's a score. And you keep on playing. But here I have no idea what's, what's going on. But seriously speaking, you know, the, you, you say that it's a worldwide, but you know, the, the political dynamic, dynamics is, uh, in different countries is different, and it creates a, a quite different environment for education as well. You know, here and in Canada and England and America and some other countries, when, when you have the two ruling parties, by definition what's going to happen is that education debates like we see here is, is always, is a kind of a black and white thing. It's all, the, you know, this is our program, it's the best we can do. No, your, your program is horrible, we have much better thing. And what happens in the elections often in these countries, as we are seeing now in Canada, if we look at Ontario or Alberta in a, in, in a moment, that when the, when the political powers change, the new regime will clean the plate and come up with their new ideas that are sometimes completely opposite um, that has been there. However, in, in Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Finland, because we, have, we are entering election, national elections now in two weeks, and we have eight, nine parties in a government, in, in, in a parliament, and it's always a coalition uh, government. So it, it's not possible that we have two parties or one party in a government. There's always, we have now three, in the next government probably four, which means that every new government has at least one party that was in a previous government. Are you following me? So it's not possible that we would have a new government that's coming in Finland. Somebody who would say that, you know, everything that you have done during the last four years or eight years is horrible. We have a better agenda. If you're a school principal in the Scandinavian Nordic countries, you can be pretty sure that whatever happens in the elections, we're going to continue working towards the same or similar lines. There may be some new things here and there, uh, but the kind of overall direction will continue. And that makes a huge difference when it comes to the political election debates and when it comes to the, what the role of the politics in education or school policies. So in, in a way I see that because of the nature of the political realities here, how, how the, the politics is restructured, you are actually suffering from the lack of sustainability often in this case. And you know what I've seen in many countries, like what's happening in, in Ontario, that often even the good things had to go only because th this was the political promise. And that, was, that, that will not happen in Finland or Nordic countries. And it's because, not because we are having a different political culture, but because of the, the structure of daily politics is very different. Um, anybody else uh, questions from the floor? Mark? I'll sneak one in. Oh, Mike. I have got a question, and it's in the context of what you're just talking about. But in the ACT, each of our schools has a school board, and I was going to ask both Vivian and, and Parsi in your travels of the world, uh, what constructive role can school boards potentially play in the governance for that support sustainability of programs? Sensibly. Yes, it's a very timely question because um, New Zealand is about to. Can completely restructure itself all over again. Um, let me start by talking about the research. When I last looked at the research, there is no evidence that involving parents in the governance of a school or fundraising or the sorts of things that parent associations typically get involved with. I'm not saying they're not good things, but there's no evidence that they have any impact on the outcomes for students, either well-being, social or academic. New Zealand involved uh, 27 years ago, radically restructured the schooling system so that each school in New Zealand, all 2,500, 
has its own parent elected board of trustees who appoint and appraise the principal. And we, like you, have a huge proportion of tiny schools. So the research evidence says no impact on student outcomes of involving parents in governance. We have an utterly committed, based on the work of Brian Caldwell. Was he Australian? Um, <laughs> of self-managing schools. Our new coalition government, three parties, has um, agreed to have a review of the, gov of the governance processes. Hooray, I say, because self the more you provide autonomy to schools, with the state absolving itself of very much responsibility, the more that is a recipe for inequity. Because you have schools drawing on the social and professional capital of their tiny communities to govern the schools, appoint and appraise the principal. Our new government recognises this and is reviewing New Zealand's school self-management process. It put out a review which argued, I thought, incredibly reasonably in terms of the inequity of our current arrangements. We have a massive problem of inequity and have had for 30 years, largely around the uh, achievement of Māori, Pacifica and working class boys. But the um, pushback has started from privileged school communities who love their autonomy, who distrust the state, and sometimes with reason. But instead of improving the state, having a discussion about the sorts of support that is needed, how to differentiate that support in ways that serve the schools that need it, how to leave schools alone that are doing well on a transparent basket of indicators. So we have a differentiated role of the state. Instead of that, we are now getting a lot of pushback and we, we may not get the advantages. So how would I involve parents? I'd involve parents in educational issues, particularly at primary school. The evidence suggests that involving them and teaching their kids um, in, in teaching their kids reading, involving them in that, and I'm talking about families and communities with lower social and professional capital. I am not talking about your kids and grandkids. Who will thrive regardless, practically, of the school they go to and the teachers they have? Leave it alone, trust them is what Passy's advice is. But in schools where the only chance to learn the school curriculum is mostly at school, then involve the parents in parenting, education, reading, screen time, and those discussions. That's what I would do. Don't waste your time and their time on governance deal with them in terms of educational engagement, letting them into the secret of how to help their kids. Parsi? No, <laughs> it's not, he's not game. No, I, I see that people are really thirsty here, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Mark, did you want to pass or you want to go? Well, I have to um, sorry, Paz, last time you were here a couple of years ago, um, our executive were fortunate enough to have a conversation with you in a, a bit of a circle conversation for about an hour. And you said a fascinating observation at that stage was that we're asking the question in Australia, is the student school ready? 
not is the school ready for the student? And it was a really different approach to what you'd observed in Finland at the time. Um, we often hear from schools at the moment that, um, and we're feeling, I guess, on our journey at the moment in regards to inclusion and including all students in our schools, ensuring all students can succeed, that that has, um, thinking about the whole needs of those students, um, we often hear from schools, we're now being psychologists, we're being counsellors, we're being nurses, we're being social workers, we're being a range of other things outside, I guess, of what we, we would see our core function to be. Are there good models where government actually comes together and actually does around school as a centre of community. Is that an effective model in terms of treating the needs of all students? And I guess, where have you seen that effectively work before? Yeah, well, it, it, I don't know how many of you in, in this room, did you get what, what the question was about? The, because I, I, I think the, the funda one fundamental difference here is that the school readiness, this would be one, one of those things that if I could educate any parents or work with the parents is probably a better way to say uh, and this would be one of those things that we, we, we have to we, we can think very differently about what the school readiness means because now for most parents and most most of us the school readiness means that we we are concerned about the child whether she or he is ready for the school uh, whatever the criteria and standards in our minds are but parents are carrying a very heavy burden about that, you know, thinking about their own kids, you know, is she or he now ready to, you know, cope and deal with all those expectations in the school. Whereas back home in Finland, I guess if this is a more general in Nordic countries, school readiness means that the school has to be ready for all different types of children. Which, uh, you know, if you, if you think about the child's perspective or parents, it takes all this fear and burden away from us. Because I, as a, as a parent in Finland, we were absolutely clear that whoever the child is, whatever she or he can do, these kids will be welcomed in the school as they are. And the school was held accountable and responsible for making sure that all these different individuals will feel safe and comfortable and have a good start for the schooling. You know, I, I think this whole story about changing the mindset of people to think about education can be built around these little different episodes and stories to try to understand that, hey, we can, we can think differently about these things. And often people say that, you know, I didn't know that there are places where you think like this. Uh, that can lead to, you know, you can, you can use a small data uh, metaphor here, but it can lead to huge issues in the long run if you put this, this, um, all these things in a, um, in a bigger big picture. Vivian? Thank you. Can we please thank Vivian and Parsi for...